This is the Uncommon Sense Podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. First up on the show, I had Ben Eltham come in to talk about federal politics. Then, historian from Macquarie University, Professor David Christian, joined me in the studio to talk about his new book, Origin Story, A Big History of Everything. And finally, Dr Anne Rees, David Myers Research Fellow at La Trobe University, joined me in the studio to talk about their article in the conversation, The Australian Women Expats Who Found Liberation in the US. You are tuned to 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne. This is Uncommon Sense and I am now speaking with Ben Eltham, who is the National Affairs Correspondent for New Matilda, and he joins me to discuss federal politics. Hi, Ben. Good morning, Amy. How are you? Morning. I am good. I'm very much awake because um, I walked outside and completely froze to death and apparently it was like... One degree when my Uber driver woke up, and it was four, three or four degrees by the time I got into a car. So it's nice and crisp this morning, wasn't it? I had to scrape the ice off the car windscreen this morning. It's kind of nice, actually, in a way, apart from the torture. But yes, it's a good morning and a good wake-up call now, so I can be fully alert to federal politics. Ben, Um, before we get into that, just want to say congratulations. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to you and your partner on the. On your wonderful baby, who is actually cute. I'm not just saying that, like, she's we think genuinely she's cute. cute. Yeah, we, we think she's cute. Yeah. Um, of course, I have two daughters, two you wonderful do. daughters, so I do want to give a shout-out to Yuri as well Never as Never forget about the eldest, yeah. can I say, <laughs> yeah. from personal experience. She asked me to mention her the other day, <laughs> so I will do that. Yuri does deserve a mention, though, because yeah. she's a bit of a legend. Yeah. Um, so we'll head into federal politics now. So, Ben... There's, there is a lot going on, particularly at the moment we've seen a bit of shifting in party affiliations in the Senate. Um, this has become quite a normal thing now almost that we see senators moving from party to party. Um, the latest one is uh, uh, One Nation now moving to what was Palmer United Party and we're talking about Clive Palmer here and now it's called the United Australia Party. Yes, that's right. Um, Brian Burston, a former One Nation senator, has uh, pitched his tent in with Clive Palmer. Remember him? He's back and uh, he's uh, restarted his political ambitions with the uh, so-called United Australia Party, which is a, a very old party in Australian history. and It actually is the forerunner to the Liberal Party federally back in the 1930s. Uh, so quite a cheeky kind of uh, name there from Clive Palmer. It is cheeky, isn't yeah, it? Yeah. That's kind of... Um, has anyone copyrighted that? Like, I don't know if you can copyright a political party. I mean, the, the UAP ceased to exist... Um, during the Second World War and um, the the remains of that party were reconstituted by Robert Menzies as the Liberal Party. Mm, fascinating. <coughs> so there's plenty of history uh, in today's show then. And Ben, like, so we've seen this movement happen. We are constantly... Um, I guess, looking at the numbers in the Senate and what will or won't happen with certain pieces of legislation because there really are some very different views on what should happen, particularly with the tax cuts and package that the government is trying to get through in full. They want an entire package which is applicable um, four to six years out from where we are right now. So they really are crystal ball gazing in terms of um, this package that they want to get out. There is a first round of 
legislative cuts, which does have broad consensus that most uh, parties and senators want. But then when we get out beyond the first tranche of tax cuts, there is uh, such a wide uh, amount of, of views, disparate views. Yeah, good description of it, Amy. So the government has announced this very big flat tax scheme in the in the federal budget in May. Um, this is the one that's going to cost $140 billion over 10 years and um, radically flatten the income tax scales, uh, mean that someone on $41,000 is paying the same rate of tax as someone on $200,000. So it will be disastrous for inequality. Mm-hmm. Um, the government wants to – you're right – the government wants to implement the whole thing lock, stock and barrel um, in one go um, and instead of splitting it up into a series of bills – um, because Labor supports uh, the first tranche of the bill, um, but obviously Labor doesn't support the um, radical flattening of the income tax scale. So um, there's a fair bit of electioneering and politicking going on here. I actually mm-hmm. think the coalition is clearing the decks for a, an election later this year. I think this is all part of a bit of a, a broader plan here to, to actually beat Labor over the head by saying Labor won't pass our tax cuts and then they want to go to the election with tax cuts as their policy, I think. Mm. Well, I mean, they do tend to spend their life going to elections with tax cuts, don't they? This seems to be their only flagship policy. It's a pretty solid conservative policy, you know, something that the entire Liberal base can agree with, paying less tax. Um, And it also, I think, gives them something to stand for when, you know, more or less this has been a government that hasn't stood for a lot, at least overtly. I mean, covertly, it stood for all sorts of things and has had all sorts of policies going on under the radar. But in terms of its big picture policies, this government hasn't really stood for very much except for company tax cuts. Um, which is still trying to get through, of course, the Senate. Um, and you're right to point out the Senate's in a very interesting si- situation at the moment. It's in sort of flux. And you've got all of these minor party senators changing allegiances. There's a bit of a shifting patchwork quilt there um, of former senators. You know, And, of course, the, the Senate's had lots and lots of changes owing to the Section 44 constitutional mm. problems. So um, it's hard to see how the coalition will get all this stuff through the Senate. I don't think most of these senators will vote for their big big tax cuts, Um, but there's certainly a lot of room for negotiation. There is. And um, certainly even senators like Tim Storer have um, come out saying that they support that first round. But then beyond that, um, they want to make amendments. That's and even, right, yeah. even those amendments are going to be hotly contested and might take all week if they would be successful to even to even get up. Yes, I mean, I don't see how um, the amendments can't really succeed without the government. So if the government is insistent on keeping the whole bill as one bill, uh, then I don't see how the amendments can get up. And and again, this speaks to a government that's not really interested in passing the tax cuts bit by bit. It speaks to a government that wants a big symbolic policy in order to take to, a, you know, a potentially, say, a November election. Mm. 
it's their way or the highway. And we have seen One Nation waver a lot on whether they do or don't support these tax cuts and they've been quite unpredictable uh, and they've now not supporting it. But um, who the hell knows what will go on and whether anyone will change their mind. I mean, what can happen oh, well, in Pauline, politics? Pauline Hanson will definitely change her mind. Just uh, depends when. Yeah, yeah. She will, she will, she's been a weather vane on this and, and she continues to swing with the wind. So um, she's very amenable, I think, to, to government um, inducements and, and deals. Uh, the other crossbenchers, I think it's going to have to be a case-by-case situation, you know. Mm. Um, Tim Storer is a bit of an economic dry. I mean, I think that he will oppose it for reasons of budget discipline, believe it or not. Um, the Greens obviously oppose it, all of it. Um, Labor's got some interesting decisions to make, whether it, how it will work this in the Senate, because... Labor would like to deliver some tax relief and it doesn't want to get wedged on tax policy. But by the same token, I think, you know, if Labor were to vote for this big flattening of the tax system, that would be disastrous politically as Mm. well as um, in terms of the internal politics of the Labor Party. It would, yeah. I've been away for a few weeks, as you know, um, just having having kids and stuff. (laughs) but. But coming back to looking at politics after a few weeks away gives you a little bit more perspective. Mm. And, you know, what What really strikes me is the degree to which the major parties have just stopped talking to ordinary Australians and are just really engaged in their own internal political debates at the moment. Uh, the Labor Party is absolutely consumed by internal factional warfare, uh, once again, um, in particular the run-up to the, the federal... Uh, convention later on this year, mm. the one that they had it's to going postpone. going to be in December. Yeah. Yep. They had to postpone it because the government put the by-elections on. In July. In July. Yep. Um, so that's a that's a very big platform conference where all the Labor delegates get together and decide policy. And the numbers are very finely balanced. If the left of Labor were to be able to get a few more people into that room, then they might be able to affect a whole bunch of policy changes along things like refugees. And, and that would be very mm. politically controversial within the Labor Party and obviously more broadly. Meanwhile, the Liberal Party uh, is just relentlessly drifting to the right. And so on the weekend we saw, as you mentioned in the, at the start of the show, we saw the, the federal Liberal delegates vote to privatise the ABC um, and a bunch of other very right-wing policies pushed through at the federal level. Now, they're not binding on the Liberal Party in the way that the Labor Party policies are binding on the parliamentary Labor Party, but they certainly show you where the Liberal Party is headed ideologically. And that, that place is very much towards a sort of US Republican Party kind of political position, mm. uh, a piece, a place of, of capital C conservatism, of radical, um, radical anti-state kind of beliefs, you know, privatising many more things, reducing the size of government, cutting taxes, particularly to the wealthy and the, and the rich people. Um, it's quite a change from where the, even the, the moderate Liberal Party is at the moment. It is, and that people have said that it's really the Victorian Liberal Party that has done the biggest conservative turnaround in terms of being highly conservative, almost in some cases religious in their conservatism. Yes, there's no doubt about that. Um, within the, the Victorian branch of the Liberal Party, 
there's been a big factional fight underway, which has really been won basically by the Conservatives. So, um, yeah, many of these uh, Conservatives are highly motivated, very organised, um, and they've they've waged a war through the branches of the Liberal Party to take over key positions within the Victorian Liberal Party. There's a there's a fellow called uh, Bastian, um, who's a young Liberal you know, in his sort of, uh, I think, early 30s. And he's ended up being a factional boss in the Victorian Liberal Party. He's very conservative. He's uh, quite religiously motivated. Um, and, and these guys are not like your your old school patrician, moderate Victorian liberals, um, very mm. different to your Ted Bailey type uh, Victorian liberals. Uh, these guys are right-wing ideological warriors, really. Um, and so um, they are going to drive the, the Victorian Liberal Party in a much more conservative direction. And um, through the Victorian Party, they're going to drive the Federal Party in a more right-wing direction as well. Mm, it is um, a bit disturbing to see because we have seen, even at the federal level, a lot more of the people being pre-selected and also then being elected, being part of that hard-right part faction, the so-called, um, isn't it Christensen, George Christensen, that kind of style of, um, you know, get rid of government and um, like, you know, they're almost making themselves redundant through their own ideology. Well, Christensen's kind of in, in his own kind of faction, I think, a <laughs> faction of one even, you might say. Oh, I don't know. Um, isn't Ruddick and all of those other, you know, abets, we've got the old Tony Abbott yeah, crew. So I put those guys in the sort of old guard conservatives, so, um, you know, the Abbott government basically. Mm. You're right, Eric Abetz, Tony Abbott. Um, and we've know, got the new IPA people. The IPA has always been in its own kind of faction, if you like. It's more of the kind of libertarian right, um, pro-business, very obviously mm. pro-business, um, you know, self-consciously neoliberal. Or they, they wouldn't call themselves that. They'd call themselves classical liberal, but, you know, very much about a, a night watchman state, uh, a, a government that's small as possible, privatise the ABC, these kind of policies. Mm. I mean, the privatise the ABC policies come out of the IPA. Um, it was the, They've been lobbying for that for years. Long time, but they've recently written a book um, <laughs> about it. Um, Interesting. Chris Berg and Sinclair Davidson have got together there to uh, put out their manifesto for privatising Australia's public broadcaster. I mean, just on the ABC, let's have a chat Please about do. that. Please do, yep. Yep, so... Um, this is a very sincerely held view within large parts of the Liberal Party. Mm. Um, they hate the ABC. I mean, let's just let's just say it like that. They despise, loathe, fear. I think as well the ABC. Um, but they are completely out of touch with ordinary Australians. Uh, you know, poll after poll after poll shows that the ABC is the most trusted institution in the nation, more trusted than the High Court, more trusted than the police, more trusted than your local primary school. You know, the ABC is probably the organisation with the highest amount of social capital in the entire nation of Australia. So um, there are a lot of Liberal voters, particularly out in the regions, who rely on the ABC, depend on the ABC, and not just in emergency broadcasting, but day in, day out for their news and really for the important aspects of their civilization, you know. Mm. So for the Liberal Party to be attacking the ABC, I think, tells you something really significant about where the Liberal Party is at ideologically. And that is they're prepared to take significant political damage on an issue like this. Um, 
because of their ideological beliefs. So, um, you know, I think this is it does show you that they are sincere about nobbling the ABC. I mean, um, Mitch Fifield, the communications minister, has said, look, it's not government policy. We're not going to sell off the ABC. We'll never sell off the ABC. Mm. I don't believe him. I really don't believe him. I think if the Turnbull government is re-elected, you'll see genuine moves to privatise or at least de- further destabilise the ABC, cut its funding more, continue to pressure it with complaints, um, stack its board. I mean, these are things that are already happening. It is. And yesterday, um, Scott Morrison, the Treasurer, said that he funds the ABC himself. Therefore, he can't come out in support or can, or be against it because he funds it. Well, a lot of people have come out and said, actually, we fund it, uh, being taxpayers fund it. There seems to be a bit of a disconnect in terms of how the government perceives itself and its relationship with the ABC and how the public sees things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the government, I think, very much sees the ABC as... Well, John Howard's famous phrase, it's our enemies talking to our friends. And that's always how the Liberal Party has seen the ABC for decades now. So they see it as an organisation infested with left-wingers and, you know, borderline communists and Marxists, and yet with this very powerful communications infrastructure um, that is very influential in Australian society. Um, and, And they can see that if we were to get rid of the ABC in Australia, we would have a much more right wing communications sphere, you know, media scape. Um, and so um, there are hard-headed political reasons why they would like to get rid of the ABC, but above and beyond their very sincere ideological beliefs that, you know, there shouldn't be a public broadcaster in the first place. Mm. Um, ben, we're coming up to um, the by-elections, which will be July, end of July. That's right, July 29th, I yeah. believe. Yep. And there are about five, I believe, by-elections happening on the one day. Uh, we have seen this lead-up um, with the Liberal Party using this whole um, Labor conference and destabilisation about refugees to um, potentially undermine their success at uh, these by-elections. But now we've seen them stick their own foots in it with uh, not only the ABC vote but also Voting to move the embassy to Jerusalem, which <laughs> yeah. Sorry, won't forgot about happen. That. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, it was quite um, amusing, but also not so amusing for Julie Bishop, who uh, was, you know, out there at that council meeting. Uh, she gave a five-minute speech saying why this was the wrong thing to do, and then was still voted against uh, at that council. So you can see. Like they're having a public disagreement, really, um, about these these issues, which are very ideological. Do you? Where are we at in terms of the by elections and and the kind of campaign mode? Because it seems like things are, um, you know, not really much substance and and more about political mudslinging. Yeah, well, that's often the way in politics, Amy. I, I don't think we'll see much of a policy discussion coming into these by elections. Um, they'll probably assume their own local character, I'd, I'd, I'd suggest. They certainly will be uh, something of a, a litmus test for the government, obviously. I mean, it's very hard for a sitting government 
uh, to win by-elections. Um, but they're, they're a chance. You know, if you look at some of the seats that are in play, Longman in regional Brisbane is traditionally a conservative seat. I mean, it was held by the LNP for large parts of the last two decades. It was Mal Brough's old seat and it was mm. Wyatt Roy's seat. Um, so they would hope to win Longman back. Um you know, Mayo, I think, over in South Australia is going to be a really interesting race. Uh, there you've got uh, you've got um, Rebecca Sharkey is the sitting member for Mayo, former Xenophon uh, person there. Uh, she's up against Georgina Downer, a skion of mm. the Downer clan. Um, if she wins, Georgina Downer will be the fourth generation of Downers <laughs> to represent the Liberal Party or the conservative side of politics um, in and around South Australia. So um, I think the ABC thing will be very, very difficult actually for Georgina Downer. True, because part of that uh, electorate is quite regional rural. Absolutely. And people out there are quite reliant upon the ABC. Yes, and Downer is in the IPA too. And, of course, mm-hmm. the privatised the ABC pushes come from the IPA. So, um, you know, as as positive as membership of the IPA has been for Georgina Downer's political ambitions, it might also be damaging for her electoral ambitions in Mayo. So that those are two seats to watch, um, you know, but there's actually... It, it, the, in terms of the politics of those five by-elections... Uh, the government would be hoping to win at least one seat. If they can win one seat of the five, I think they can probably even declare victory. Mm. Um, but if they lose every single by-election, I think it will look really be, bad. Yeah, embarrassing. Yeah, yeah. yeah John Howard um, said over the weekend at that council conference that he is very hopeful and thinks that the direction of the Liberal Party is great and that things have massively improved over the last six months. So he's been out talking up and spruiking Malcolm Turnbull's leadership. Um, Maybe Malcolm Turnbull needs that level of spruiking, I'm not sure. But Australia at the moment on the world stage has been put in a bit of a pickle, um, as many other countries have been with Donald Trump's leadership and the uh, Kim Jong-un summit where we saw two uh, leaders shake hands and sign a very non-binding fluffy document which didn't really say a whole lot. But one of the things it did do was to suggest that America might start pulling out uh, some of its troops into the future. They've already said that they wouldn't engage in war games, which they normally do with South Korea. And a lot of Australians, particularly in the government, get a bit nervous around the idea that America may not be as actively participating in the region as we like because, you know, we still see them as one of our key allies in this region. And as we've seen with the legislation that's been put forward uh, by the Attorney General around foreign interference and those uh, law, that, that, that bill, there are two bills that they're trying to get through the government in terms of um, the risks around foreign interference from other countries. And there's certainly been um, a nod towards China although the government's trying to avoid singling out certain countries. What do you think um, that's going to mean for the government, particularly like Donald Trump coming out and being so unpredictable, but also um, our own relations with the Asia-Pacific region at the moment seem to be a little bit on edge? Yeah, oh, very big question, Amy. <laughs> yep. Well, I didn't want to make it too easy for yeah, you on yeah. your first week back. That's okay, yeah. Um, let, me, let me just process that for a second or two. 
Look, um, if we go back to first principles, I would say that the biggest problem here is the rise of China, okay? And that is discombobulating the Australian foreign policy elite. For 50 years, uh, Australian foreign policy proceeded on the rock-solid assumption of US hegemony in the Pacific and in Asia. Um, Now, that's decaying. In fact, we can see that probably within the next decade or so, um, China will achieve regional hegemony in Asia if it hasn't already achieved it. Um, And really, it's hard to see anything else happening. Um, So uh, Australia needs to adapt to that new geopolitical environment. And that's proving very difficult for the boffins in Canberra because Australia doesn't have a large enough defence force really to defend itself against a great power adversary. Um, So we're going to have to build alliances. Um, And most of our alliance structure, most of our culture really, our defence culture, has been orientated towards the United States. Um, And and I think Australia's got some very big choices to make. Personally, I'd like to see Australia pivot towards China, accept the reality of a rising China and meet that reality in the future. Um, That's going to be very difficult for the Australian defence establishment and foreign policy establishment Mm. um, for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, just for for one, how many people speak Mandarin in Canberra? Not a whole lot, you know. And and Australia has traditionally been very bad at engaging with our Asia-Pacific nations on their own terms. How many people speak Bahasa in Malaysia or Bahasa Indonesia? You know, it, we, we have massive deficits in terms of our cultural understanding of our near neighbours. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's going to get us into trouble, I'm sorry to say. Um, I, I don't like the direction Australian foreign policy is going in. Well, it's also just not a new thing. I mean, we can look back to Prime Minister Paul Keating and his whole discussion around Asia and um, that we needed to focus our attention to that region. I mean, the so-called boffins have had a very long time to adjust their expectations and intentions and they haven't really done that, have they? No, I don't think they have. Um, You know, even the the latest foreign policy white paper that came out last year... um, I had a talk to Tony Walker about it, I think, when I was filling in for you, Amy. Um, you know, e- even that that paper is still very much predicated on this idea of the so-called rules-based international order. Mm. Now, what is the rules-based international order? It's US hegemony. I mean, who wrote the rules? The United States wrote the rules in 1944 at Bretton Woods. So, you know, there's still, I think, uh, an element of denial in Australian foreign policy about the the level of destabilisation that's coming towards us. Mm, I think people are hoping that Trump won't win the next uh, election and therefore they can go back to business as usual. Yeah, but even if Trump doesn't win the next election, and let's say you have a hawkish Democrat president, like someone like a Hillary Clinton, mm. um, I don't think that's going to change the underlying dynamic, which is that China is going to be the largest economy in the world and very soon will have the largest military in the world. And th- there's really no getting around it. Economic power in the end determines military power. So, uh, you know, uh, that's going to pose challenges for Australia because uh, there's a much less snug fit between Australian values and Chinese values compared to, you know, Australia and the United States, both English-speaking Western democracies. China is not a democracy. Uh, China is a a great power that has suffered huge humiliations from the West over centuries. It's looking to reassert its historic dominance. You know, I mean, for most of world history, China has been the largest and most important polity in the globe. Um, And we're going to return to that point 
to that point very soon. So we need to get used to that, I think, much more. Uh, we, we, we just need to face up to that reality. We do. Ben, it's been fantastic to have you back talking about federal politics and I hope you have a great week with your lovely children and Thank partner. You. And yes. congratulations again. Thanks, Amy. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Uncommon Sense on 3RRR FM with Amy Mullins. I'm delighted now to have with me in the studio historian David Christian, who has written a book called Origin Story, A Big History of Everything, and it's out through Alan Lane. And I welcome David now. Hi there. Hi. It's so wonderful to have you in and thank you for making the trip and the time to be here. First of all, David, I'd love to understand your background and your training because uh, your background, your academic expertise started out in a really different area. And I'd just like to know how you professionally came to this point where we are at with origin stories. So uh, you started out um, doing a PhD in Russian history, in I Russian believe. Russian history, in a, in a, on a tiny topic. I mean, uh, the PhD is normally, it's got to be on a fairly small topic because it's you have to prove that you can do extended research and it was actually on a on a failed reform in russia in the early 19th century which took two years and went absolutely nowhere so (laughs) so i think i've been sort of you know um widening the lens ever since really really i also heard that you studied russian in russia to do that phd yeah, I uh, I was an exchange student in in what was then Leningrad uh, during the Brezhnev era, which was not easy but incredibly interesting because during the Cold War, for someone who grew up in England, uh, the Soviet Union was the dark side. It it was you know the other side of the world, so it was absolutely fascinating, and I did research um, in in the archives in Leningrad. Mm, that must have been, I guess, a formative time for you professionally because doing a PhD is one of those major milestones. But you currently work at Macquarie University and uh, I'd really like to know how your focus on big history evolved because it's happened over quite a number of decades. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm not always sure exactly why it happened, but, but teaching Russian history during the Cold War, you felt you were almost teaching the history of half the world. So it was already a big topic. And you, you look at a map, as any, any Russian patriot will tell you, this is big. This is seriously big. You know? so, so I already felt I was de- teaching a, sort of a large topic but, and an important one. But I think what happened is I became more and more concerned with the fact that I was teaching a national history. I'm not Russian, but I was teaching a a national history. And most historians actually do that. Most historians in most countries in the world. And the trouble is, I'm not against national histories, but if that's all you teach, the subliminal message you give, I think, is that we humans are divided at the most fundamental level into warring tribes. And I more and more thought, because I remember living through the Cuban Missile Crisis. I was a schoolboy in England during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And um, I remember one day during the Missile Crisis, a group of us used to play a, 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 a form of fives. And one of my friends came up to me afterwards and, and shook my hand. And I said, what's that for? He said, I'm not sure we'll see each other tomorrow. That really shocked me. And I remember thinking at the same time, I wonder if there are kids over there 
that side who are thinking exactly the same thing. And then I ended up thinking, how balmy is this? So I thought that as a historian, it might be really important to try to teach the history of humanity. In other words, to, to see that there's a unifying story that unifies all humans in the way that national stories create a sense of a sort of unifying imagined community for Australians or Russians or, 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 or you know, Chinese people. Can we do the same thing for humanity? Because in a world with nuclear weapons, it seemed to me this is more and more urgent and it's getting even more urgent given that we're now facing huge global problems that cannot be solved nation by nation but will require cooperation really we are in the era of globalization we're so interconnected it makes more and more sense to have a unifying story that everyone can subscribe to Um, and as we'll discover through this discussion we have a lot more in common than we do in terms of differences and and i think the the for, for for me the i the idea of a unifying story, you wouldn't replace existing stories, you know, local stories, personal stories, national stories. It's just one other story that we need on top of all of those to encourage a sense of that that as human beings now we're so globally interconnected that we have to work together to solve big problems like like, mm. you know, ocean warming, climate change, declining biodiversity, all these huge problems. So once I started thinking, how could you teach a history of humanity? Because I had no idea. So I, I think my colleagues thought I was going through a midlife crisis <laughs> at this point. So I, um, I started trying to figure out how you'd teach it. And what happened was I went through this sort of sequence of thoughts that I think probably many other people have been through. If you teach a history of humanity, first thing, you're going to have to teach the Paleolithic. Because chronologically... Most of human history has been Paleolithic. Now, in in teaching in Australia, that is peculiarly strategic. So you're going to have to teach 200,000 years. But then I thought, yeah, but you can't just start, say, okay, humans are here. You have to say, how did humans get here? And then suddenly I realised I'm off the territory of history and into biology. And then I thought, if I'm serious about how humans got here, I have to talk seriously about evolution Mm. back to the origins of life on Earth. That takes me back four billion years. And to do that seriously, I have to talk about planet Earth and its history. And to do that seriously, I have to talk about how planets form, how stars form, and back and back and back, until eventually I realise there is a starting point, at least the way science works right now. And that starting point is the Big Bang. So I began to think, um, having begun with the idea of a history of humanity, maybe to teach that properly we need a sense of the history of the universe. Can you do that? That was the question. Mm. And I began thinking, well, I'm not sure, but it sounds really interesting. And God bless my colleagues. They let me have a shot at it. (laughs) Well, that is also a really important point, to have the time to do such a project like this, which is very extensively researched. I mean, it's mind-boggling, the amount of information that's in here, but also is communicated in such plain, relatable language. Oh, I'm delighted you find it. Yeah, I'm, yes. you find it accessible. I, mean, I worked Absolutely. really hard to make it. But, but I've been teaching this for almost 30 years. When I began, I, I, I promise you, I, hadn't, I don't think any of us who worked on that first course, and there were a lot of us, 
really could see a coherent story. It was a bit like looking at a kind of stained glass window, you know, there's the sort of, there's the, the cosmo- cosmology bit, and then there's the geology bit, and then there's the biology mm. bit, and then there's the, you know, the, there's the anthropology bit, and they all have different colours, they have different, different jargon, different methodologies, different conventions. So at first, it was really hard to see a unifying story. But I was probably the only one who sat in on all the lectures because we got, we invited, when we first began in 1989, I invited lecturers from right across the university. And that was interesting because some people I'd say, would you feel like giving a a lecture summing up the whole of astronomy for my first year history students? And some people said, I don't think so. Mm. But then some people said, yeah, I'd love to have a go. And so we ended up with this wonderful group of lecturers. Um... But at first, it was really hard to see the coherent story. But over the years, gradually, I began to see a more coherent story. And within two or three years, I was absolutely convinced that there is a story here that is teachable. You can Mm. teach it at the university level, just as I'd been teaching Russian history. And now we know you can teach it at the high school level, because we're doing this in well over a thousand schools, about 200 of them in Australia. I have seen certainly the university system become a lot more broad and multidisciplinary and they're moving away from that highly specialised focus, at least in arts and humanities degrees. They're looking to broaden people's minds into science and other areas. And this book really is about, as you've said, the origin story this origin story in particular, is based on modern scientific scholarship across many disciplines. And I think it highlights just how interrelated and interdependent the arts, humanities and science, engineering, maths, etc. are, that you really can't separate them. I mean, you can into, you know, you can go into more detail and granularity in certain fields. And as you said, they have a type of lexicon. But really, if you're looking at this bird's eye view, this overarching story, everything is interconnected and everything uh, needs to be explored. It it, it really is. And it's like using a series of different lenses. Each lens can add something. So the real beauty, I think, of trying to put all these stories together is that you do end up with something that's much more than the sum of its parts. And that's not immediately obvious because we we, we live in a world where there's a sort of fundamental assumption that good teaching and good research is specialised, that you want your teacher to have focused sharply on something. And actually... Though you're you're absolutely right, there is more openness to interdisciplinarity. Nevertheless, there are so many subtle tripwires that make it really difficult mm. to do very interdisciplinary work. And 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 I think perhaps the first of them is the suspicion that many have that if you go too broad, that means you're 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 going to be superficial. Mm. Now, I someone like Einstein, I think for me, is the simple refutation of that idea we need both breadth and depth in our scholarship and in the sciences this is probably better understood i think than in the humanities because in most of the sciences there are big paradigm ideas and you know scientists working on very detailed projects know that they have to link their research to those big paradigm ideas but in the humanities we don't really have those unifying ideas no you know so so often competing ideas there's Sorry? a lot a lot of competing ideas at yes. times. Yes. Those big ideas, particularly in history. 
Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Because there's no, there's no sort of fundamental theory mm. about history. In biology, there is a fundamental theory about the crucial driver. Now, we know that it works in incredibly exotic and interesting and sometimes counterintuitive ways, but we know there's a driver. And that unifies research in biology, and it has done ever since Darwin. Uh, in, in history, we don't yet have a paradigm idea. I mean, I'm actually personally optimistic that one may eventually emerge but, mm. but at the moment that's a very unfashionable idea I would say in the humanities. Let's head into how you start this book because there is a really important timeline that is detailed and it goes into the billions of years that we're looking at. It divides each of these major changes or events into thresholds why did you look at complexity as being the reason why we tip over into a new threshold? Well, can I back up a bit? Because yes. um, in, in a sense, what we're doing is, at least I think what those of us trying to do big history are doing is very simple. It's like making a quilt. You know, I take the cosmologist story and I try mm. to stitch it with the uh, chemist story and the planetary scientist story and the biologist story. So the, the detailed information really comes from many, many different disciplines. So I, I wouldn't even say that I'm trying to offer a theory here at all. I am mm. trying to find the most coherent way of linking up all those stories into something coherent. Mm. And over the years, the, the theme that's emerged as at least for me, and I think for quite a few other people who are interested in big history, as the one that sort of holds it all together, is the idea that the early universe was very simple. I mean, you can think of a thin, homogenous mist, almost perfectly uniform, of hydrogen and helium atoms with light traveling through them, lots of dark matter, which we don't understand, and dark energy, which we don't understand. Mm. That's it. No structure at all, you know, not even any stars and not even any higher chemicals. So that's, that's the starting point, not long after the Big Bang. So the big question is, how do you get from there to the staggering complexity that we see today on planet Earth? Um, which, and, and this today's globalised world is, is probably the most complex thing that we're aware of at the moment. There may be more complex things, but it's the most complex thing we're, we're aware of. So how do you get there? I think the answer is you, you can see a series of steps at which new things appear. And whenever they appear, it's always magical. It's like, it's like watching a baby being born, honestly. You know, something that did not exist now exists. So it's kind of miraculous. But can we describe it clearly and scientifically, these, these moments when something new appears? And over the years... And this is really a teaching device. It's not a theoretical device. We've, we've found it works to focus on about eight of these thresholds. That's moments at which something new appears in the universe that creates the foundation for the next threshold and the next threshold and so on. So, so that's really the logic behind the eight thresholds that give the book shape. It's an organising principle rather mm. than a theory. I mean, if you wanted to, you could have a hundred thresholds, but that'd be harder to read. <laughs> very, very much harder to read. But let's 
then look at what the first threshold is and perhaps identify or acknowledge the fact that this is really a secular humanist approach. Um, you're not trying to override, as you said, other people's stories, but this is beginning from a point which is it's the Big Bang Theory um, and that God is not the creator of this universe. And I really like the quote that you opened with in Threshold One, which you write, you said, at the age of 18, Bertrand Russell, the great philosopher, gave up on the idea of a creator God after reading the following passage in the autobiography of John Stuart Mill, quote, my father taught me that the question, who made me, cannot be answered, since it immediately suggests the further question, who made God? I guess that's the foundation really here is to say that science is what we can be certain of, or at least most of science we can be fairly certain of and have an evidence base for. And therefore, this book is based on where the evidence has led yeah. historians and um, yourself and other scientists. The reason I call this an origin story is partly so that I don't give the impression that all previous origin stories are kind of eclipsed by this. That's not quite the way it works, because we can guarantee that in 100 years' time, parts of this story are going to look kind of naive and, and cute. So, But this is the origin story that seems to exist right now. So if you live in today's world right now, this seems to be the origin story you, you should go for. Mm. And it just happens that one of the qualities of this origin story is that it does not begin with a creator God. Now, there are actually many origin stories that don't begin with a creator God. I mean, certain, certain versions of, you know, the Buddhist origin story or, or you know, Hindu thinking, the Upanishads. Um, there's just... There's a place, and our job as humans is, is, is to live within it. So this is not actually unique to modern science. It's just the quality of this particular origin story that the, the universe is a sort of given. Um, it's not created by someone. Therefore, it doesn't contain moral rules. We humans are the generators of meaning and of ethical rules in this origin story. Yes, Yes, exactly. So you basically say at the beginning there's a big bang. This is 13.8 billion years ago and quite helpfully in that timeline you've divided it. It's a bit easier to relate yeah. to billions when we're talking about so, so many years across this chronology from 13.8 billion years ago to today. Actually, if I could explain that chronology, mm, it's yeah. sort of, you know, if you're covering 13.8 billion years, the first temptation is to think, oh my God, you know, there's, yeah. a, there's going to be so much information, I'll never deal with it. So this is all about extreme compression. And that chronology has, I believe, 19 dates. So the idea is you can, you can really get a hold of this story with about 19 dates, eight of which are these sort of thresholds. The, the, what I do in the, in, the, in the timeline is to give the absolute date. So 13.82 billion years ago is the best date the cosmologists can give us at the moment. But then I divide them all by a billion because our minds are not designed by evolution to deal with a million years. We, we, we can't do it. Um, and if a geologist says they understand what 10 billion years is, don't believe them. They, they can't do it. Um, so I've divided all the dates by a billion. So, so that means that we can imagine the universe beginning about 13 years and eight months ago. Now, we can deal with 13 years. So if you divide all the dates by a billion, then that helps you get a sense of the shape of the overall story. Mm. So humans appear on this timeline about 100 minutes ago 
on that 13-year timeline. Um, so that, that gives you some sense of how recent, we're very, very mm. recent arrivals in this story. Yep, and that's threshold six. So we have about... That's threshold six. Yeah, that's we have right. five thresholds with no <laughs> humans, which was also fascinating to read a history book where humans are really not the main player. It's quite unique, really, in terms well, of an origin story. Yeah, and I have to say... Clearly, it makes some people very, very uncomfortable indeed, because I think there's a sort of definition of a conventional definition of history as about about humans and based on documents. But that actually already excludes huge numbers of humans. Uh, it excludes most of the humans who lived before about 5,000 years ago when we get the first documents. Um, so, so this, th- th- I see this as, 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 as much, more, much, more, much more inclusive. Um, but it's a way of extending our idea of what history is. So let's take seriously the idea that history is about the past. If the past can help us understand the present, it can provide some sort of illumination by providing context, then the question arises, for me as a historian... How far back can we go in time and still get some illumination? And I'm absolutely convinced that we can go back 13.8 billion years and Mm. still learn new things about us humans. Well, you do. I think that the explanation you provide of the Big Bang is such a great one because all I have ever come across is that there was a Big Bang and then the world happened. And the detail with which you go into it that is so easy to understand is phenomenal. And I think it's so useful for everyone to understand that it wasn't like all the elements of the universe were not created in that one moment. In fact, it's even down to milliseconds that things are changing and evolving. Once again, I go back to the fact that I'm I'm a historian, you Mm. know, trying to tease out from the incredibly rich and rigorous science generated by cosmologists, something that a non-cosmologist can really get a hold of that's a story and and so within modern science there are these 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 wonderful stories the best we can do for understanding this is threshold one Mm. uh, which creates a universe so you need a a universe if you're going to tell this story Um, the best we can do about the very beginning is say that we don't know it's actually like the problem of that Bertrand Russell talked about we actually do not know how to kickstart this story. Um, so just as in the deistic religions, at some point you have to say, and God made. And, and the question, who made God, is just left hanging mm. there. Same thing with the Big Bang. We have to say, well, something appeared. Uh, we don't know what it came out of. We don't know why it appeared. It was smaller than an atom. And it seems to have contained everything that's in our universe today every smidgen of energy every photon of light you know every potential that exists every atom that's in you and me was in that tiny thing and 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 at first that sounds completely crazy but the thing is there's an overwhelming amount of evidence that tells us that this is actually how our universe began um the, 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 the fundamental one and the easiest one to understand is simply the, the realisation that our universe is expanding. So if it's expanding now, you can sort of mentally wind the story backwards and there must have been a point at which it was incredibly small. Mm. And, and the other thing is that the physicists can now actually figure out 
the stages and the evolution of that incredibly small thing. And we now can figure out with a lot of detail, and we even have some direct evidence, we can sort of take its temperature because we have this release of energy, the cosmic background radiation, about 300 and almost 400,000 years after the Big Bang. And we can detect it and we can measure tiny changes. So we know how much variation there was in pressure and temperature about 400,000 years after the Big Bang. So we now know quite a lot about the early universe and we'll learn a lot more in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yes, and to put things into a bit of perspective, you write that our universe began as a point smaller than an atom and you then have a great example, which is that you could squeeze a million atoms into a full stop on a page. Yep. It's yep. mind-boggling. <laughs> it, it is. And, and again, I don't think any of us can really get our brains around it. We need sort of, um, you know, little metaphorical tricks like yeah. that to just to begin to grasp what's going on. Exactly. And, and also the wonder that is yeah. what this is. Yes. I... I, I, I um, I, should, I had a there was a, there was a rather negative review of the book that said um, this is a cold book because it doesn't help us understand a Bach fugue. Well, my first reaction is I'm not writing about Bach fugues, and I think the reader must have missed the sense of awe mm. that these stories can can generate, including what you've just mentioned. Well, I was constantly in awe at what was happening, um, certainly in those first thresholds when uh, you go through the Big Bang, you say that there were only two elements, which is yep. hydrogen and helium, and then we obviously have so many more elements that came after, and I'm sure many people will remember the periodic table songs so they can recall <laughs> that it's a very long list, uh, but then we saw this kind of chemical environment and this, this matter evolve in the uh, universe to the point where we do end up with an Earth, um, with other planets and stars around those planets, but all of that wasn't there right at the beginning. So yeah. I just found all, the way that you staged that information and I guess teased it out was extremely valuable too. Great. Well, I'm glad it was clear. Mm. Because, but the idea of thresholds is, is a really helpful, I think, through a quite complicated story. One of the things I, I hope this book can do is because I, you know, I teach a lot of students who... They sign up for a history course and, and the, the first shock is when I, I stand up and start talking about the Big Bang and they think, no, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> but, but I think many students eventually realise that there is a good story to be told. And in this, and that the, the thresholds can help us through the story, like, like chapter headings. So how do you get from that thin, almost perfectly uniform mist of hydrogen and helium atoms to something more complex. Well, threshold two is the creation of stars. Um, and that's, uh, again, there's a lot of technical stuff in the science, but there is a quite simple story to be told. And, and the main actor here is just gravity, because gravity is one of the four main forms that energy assumed within a split second of the Big Bang. And what gravity does is clump things together. So gravity sort of worked on that early homogeneous universe and broke it up into clumps. And each of those clumps 
the way gravity works is the denser things are, the more powerful gravity is. So they they scrunch together under the force of gravity more and more tightly. And as they scrunch together, they got hotter and hotter and hotter. Now, most of the universe, as it's expanding, is cooling. So the whole universe is getting cooler, but these lumps of matter of hydrogen and helium are getting hotter and hotter and hotter. And then suddenly... They cross a threshold, it's probably about 10 million degrees, at which protons start fusing together and they emit a huge amount of heat and light because some of their matter is turned into pure energy. This is exactly what happens, by the way, in a hydrogen bomb. Mm. So you can think of the sun as like a kind of massive hydrogen bomb that's going to keep exploding for about 9 billion years. So that's how the first stars lit up. Um, and suddenly fusion begins, and at the centre of each of these clumps of hydrogen and helium, you now suddenly have a furnace that's pushing back against gravity, and then the whole thing stabilises, and you have a star. And that's how the first stars appear. And a universe with stars, I mean, you know, I hope you can see this is a, a, a threshold of increasing complexity, because a universe with stars is very different from one without stars. It's got galaxies, it's got, it's got there are light spots, there are dark spots, there are sort of dense spots, there are empty spots. So it's a much, got much more structure. So that's the, 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 the second threshold. Mm. And a really beautiful um, description that you use from Arthur Eddington, an English astronomer, is that you say that uh, astronomy is like walking through a forest of saplings, mature trees and ancients yeah. close to death. And by studying trees at different points in their life cycles, you can eventually figure out how they grow, mature and die. It is a beautiful description, isn't it? It's amazing. And it, it, it captures the astonishing fact. I mean, I'm the more I worked on this, the more gobsmacked I was at the skills of scientists. So stars live for so long that we, we're never going to watch a star from its infancy to its old age. What we see is billions of stars at different stages and slowly you can figure out what is the life history of a star. Mm. And for this story, the crucial thing is that, that in old age, they start breaking down. And they start breaking down because they run out of protons, basically, to fuse in their centre. And then the breakdown is quite violent and eventually generates higher and higher temperatures. And in those even higher temperatures, you can start fusing not just individual protons, but pairs of protons, and you can form larger and larger nuclei. You can form carbon, you can form oxygen, you can form nitrogen, and you can do this up to iron. But then when a really large star dies, it blows up and generates even higher temperatures that create all the other elements of the periodic table. Mm -hmm. So that's threshold three. And that's how you get a universe with now not just two elements, because you couldn't make you and me from hydrogen and helium. No. Um, but, but you've got all the 92 stable elements of the periodic table. Um, mm. and, and, and that allows the, that means the universe is now chemically more complex than it was. Yes, and I'd love to bring in here the concept of entropy because yeah, yeah. <laughs> it seems very relevant to what we've just been chatting about. I think, I mean, if I take seriously the idea that this is a story, you know, you sort of need a villain in a story. And in this story, if the story is about creating more and more complex things, such as you and me, mm. um, then you need a villain. And entropy is the villain because entropy tries to break everything down, you know, anything interesting or complex or beautiful that appears 
entropy's goal is to break it down again into something uninteresting, unstructured, uncomplex. So we know that the fundamental tendency of the universe is for things to get simpler. Now, so this creates a sort of central plot line, and this is why the idea of increasing complexity is is, is so interesting. Mm. How can you build more complex things in, in a universe ruled by the second law of thermodynamics? Eddington once said... The second law of thermodynamics is perhaps the most fundamental law of physics. If your theory goes against it, forget your theory. So that's the big question. How can you get more complex things despite the second law of thermodynamics? And I'm not sure that we have a perfect answer yet. But the best answer I know of... Well, do you want me to try this answer? Because yes, it, definitely, it, it, it's, I it's do. It's sort of yeah. crucial to understanding how complex things can exist at all. Mm. How is it possible for you and you and me to exist? I, th- I think it, it's this: you need energy to create complex things to hold them together. I mean, that's why you and I need to eat food because if we don't eat food, we fall apart. And entropy wins. You know. So um, stars need energy, and energy is provided by fusion, that, that fusion mechanism at the centre. And when fusion breaks down, they break down. So you need energy. Um, but why does entropy allow the creation of more complex things? Well, complex things depend on these huge flows of energy now look at the world around us today you know think of a city like melbourne think of the flows of energy through melbourne the beautiful thing from the point of view of entropy the villain is that these huge flows of energy organized by complex things degrade that energy so complex things speed up the process of degradation And that's why entropy sort of allows complex things to emerge. I talk about an entropy tax. It's as if entropy takes a tax from every complex thing. Eventually, gazillions and gazillions of years in the future, entropy will win. There'll be no complex things. But meanwhile, we live in a young universe where it's still possible to create complex things. And I think that's glorious. Mm. It's absolutely wondrous. Basically, we've gone through the first three thresholds. Uh, We move into the fourth threshold, which is molecules and moons. And uh, and I thought it was really interesting when you were talking about how hydrogen and helium became very irrelevant very quickly and we had other elements that became so much more fundamental to Earth, such as oxygen, silicon and uh, aluminium and iron, which make up over 80% of the Earth's crust. And then there are other elements such as calcium, carbon and phosphorus playing lesser roles. But uh, as you then say on Earth, hydrogen plays only a medium-sized role and helium is barely ever there. So That's right. How do we get from that simple to um, molecules to uh, an earth that... Because we'll get to the biosphere and the absolute... Actually, can I back up a second and introduce another concept? One of the Mm. really interesting things about trying to tell the story is I, I began by saying that each discipline had its own jargon. So in some areas, we had to try to find language that worked across multiple disciplines and and this idea of increasing complexity is one but another is the idea of goldilocks conditions um 
So when we talk about complexity, it's important to remember that complex things appear in only in very special places in the universe. Most of the universe is still very simple. So the, the, our Earth is an incredibly special and precious place, just a beautiful place for the creation of more complex things. This is why this, this, um, th- this talk about the, the balance of chemicals is really important. In most of the universe... Hydrogen and helium still make up something like, I think it's more than 95% of the atoms in the universe. They still dominate the universe. The, all the other elements are a tiny, tiny sprinkling. But one of the reasons for calling the Earth a Goldilocks environment is that in Earth, the young Earth, as the young sun blasted away at the planets that were sort of closest to it, the lightest elements were the ones most likely to be blasted away. So if you take all these molecules, you blast away most of the hydrogen and helium, suddenly you're left with this incredibly rich mix of all the other elements of the periodic table. And that's what you find in rocky planets, such as Mercury, Venus, Earth and Mars. You don't find it in Jupiter and Saturn, which are much simpler actually they're much more like the sun they're dominated by still by hydrogen and helium so that creates this really rich chemically rich environment with all of those elements you can create well you can create new and more complex molecules you can also create planets because you can create dust you can create ice so that planets are the fourth threshold Mm. um, and they're created in a universe that now has 92 elements rather than just two. And you say uh, that there are two processes that formed this solar system, solar wind and accretion being the two kind of key... Yeah, I mean, that's an oversimplification. A Mm. planetary scientist would would want to add (laughs) about 100 other elements, but but they're probably the crucial ones. Accretion is simply the fact that when a young star forms in an environment where there are kind of clouds that contain all the other elements, a thin spattering of all the other elements, then those, that material will orbit it. And as, it, as that material circles around, eventually some of these dust particles or ice particles will start to stick together. And eventually you'll get things like comets or asteroids. And if you wait long enough, you may get them sticking together within each orbit to create planets and moons and asteroids. And that's the process of accretion. And the solar wind is the other one, which um, which drives the lighter elements, above all hydrogen and helium, away from the inner orbits of the solar system so that's why you get the rocky planets close to the sun because they're basically they are they're, they're, these are regions stripped of hydrogen and helium out at once you get out to jupiter and saturn and beyond then that's where all this hydrogen and helium settles so so they're still dominated by hydrogen and helium so we do reach a point where there is life um this is threshold five threshold five yep it's pretty important (laughs) um because it's really setting up humans essentially because we then have cells and uh and this is um really interesting you say that life as we now know it arose from exotic chemistry in the element rich environments which we've just been discussing of the young planet earth almost four billion years ago and uh, you talk about the biosphere 
being a thin layer at the planet's surface, which is made up of living organisms. And, and uh, their remains. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I really liked your description of cells and their drive or what they're there to do, what their function is. And you say that it is to stay alive despite entropy and unpredictable surroundings and to make copies of themselves so that they can then do the same thing. In terms of this description or our understanding of life and threshold five, you really are looking at cells and you're also looking at the last universal common ancestor. Um, Could you talk a bit about what makes this threshold so significant, particularly for us now? Well, we're living things, so so the appearance of living things has to be significant for us. We only know of life on planet Earth, but I think more and more scientists would say the betting is pretty good, that, that there's a lot of bacterial life in the universe, probably a lot less large life, like, like you and me. Um, and we still don't know all the details about exactly how life appeared. We do know that it appeared in this environment that allowed incredibly rich, exotic chemical experimentation early on the Earth. And with life, you get a level of complexity that has completely new qualities. Now, I'm not sure that anyone knows how to describe this properly. The best thing that I think we can say about every living thing is the odd thing about it is that it acts as if it had purpose. Now, what that really means, I'm not sure I understand. But it's rocks don't push back against their environment. Basically, they're just governed by the rules of what's happening around them. Living organisms seem to push back against their environment. They... um, they respond to changes in their environment. They use information about their environment, which is absolutely crucial. And they act as if, even the simplest bacterium, acts as if it's trying to do two things. So one is survive as long as possible in a fluctuating environment. That means, you know, I have to look for energy to keep myself going. I have to run away from danger. From If it's too hot, I have to move away from it. Um, and then the second thing is to reproduce. Because if, if it simply lived and, and died, well, it's not very interesting. But reproduction means that even when the individual organism dies, the template lives on. And the templates over time can slowly change and that's the mechanism that darwin identified Mm. that 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 created from the earliest living organisms which were tiny single cell things the vast diversity of life that we see on today's planet including eventually us Exactly. We're talking about evolution here, really, and the fact that, uh, as you've said, all organisms alive today are related genetically, some more so than others. Uh, And now that we've been able to sequence the human genome and plant genomes and uh, animal genomes, we can certainly narrow down just what is similar and what's dissimilar. That said, sometimes we're still not aware of what exactly a gene is doing when it's there. In terms of uh, the earliest life, you write that the Earth consists of microscopic fossils found in Western Australia and that those particular fossils were bacteria, perhaps, that lived 3.4 billion years ago. That's one of the, the claims or one of the main claims, which is of the earliest form of life. 
I'd like to talk a bit more about um, the more developed forms of life, such as uh, mammals, which you go into greater detail. And you say that humans and chimps share a common ancestor and they did so about seven or eight million years ago. That's quite short in the, this, oh, this book's abs- chronology. Absolutely tiny, yes. Yes, yep. it's very, very recent. While you say uh, humans and bananas follow different genetic paths <laughs> for about 800 million years. That's right, years. that means that, that, that you know... I and a banana had a common ancestor about 800 million years ago, which is spooky to think about. We can be absolutely sure it's true. Yeah. Yeah, it is quite scary. That said, I I, um, had a guest on the show two weeks ago, Daniel Shamovitz, who's a plant biologist, who was saying that we also, you know, share so many genes in common with plants. It's quite disturbing. Well, it's not, I think, uh, this is one of the ways reasons I, I i love this story because the conventional way of teaching history tends to separate us out from the biosphere now once you realize that that you know your <laughs> every banana you eat is actually you're you're, you're eating a kind of distant cousin you know <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a billion a billion degrees removed but mm. we are part of a community yes uh, and we're all related we are very much part of the biosphere mm. and that helps us understand ourselves much much better and our responsibility and our responsibilities absolutely mm. but but sorry to go back to your earlier yes. point um th- th- this this I, i've divided the story of evolution in, in two parts which is little life and big life and it's as if single cells explored a lot of the techniques and gadgets that you need in order to survive um so so th- they explored lots of methods of surviving as a single cell. And then only about 600 million years ago, do we suddenly get a proliferation of large organisms, which is organisms created by millions or billions of cells actually working together to form one organism. And large organisms appear quite late. That suggests that creating large organisms is quite difficult, whereas creating bacteria looks as if it may be fairly simple if you've got the right Goldilocks conditions because they appeared fairly early in the history of the Earth. So large organisms appear about 600 million years ago. Mm. Um, Mammals only about 200 million years ago, something like that. And primates, the group to which we belong to, less than 100 million years ago. Which is... Which is quite brief. Just yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And you you write that the first multicellular organisms were probably plants because they had chloroplasts inside their cells so they could do photosynthesis. But what I found very uh, interesting was that the earliest evidence for multicellular animals comes from the oceans of the Ediacaran period, named after the Ediacaran Hills in South Australia, right in our own country, where the first fossils from this period were discovered in the 1940s. Yep. Well, I mean, the 19th century, the study of fossils, of course, without without sort of really powerful microscopes, they could only, you know, it, it was sort of naked eye work most mm. of the time. So, so about 540 million years ago in the Cambrian, you suddenly get a lot of uh, organ- large organisms with hard shells. So for 19th century paleontologists, it really looked as if life popped up about 540 million years ago. Since then, of course, we've we've learned that bacteria popped up much earlier. And the Ediacaran um, period was discovered that there were organisms about 
60 million years before the Cambrian explosion um, became clear from these fossil traces, really, in South Australia. Mm. And those organisms were soft-bodied, and that's why it was so hard to see them, that they weren't really identified in the 19th century. But we now know that the Ediacaran period is really the first period in which large-bodied organisms really flourish on planet Earth. Mm. And obviously that research presumably still continues because in many of these periods and eons that you're talking about, we have examples, but we know that that can't possibly be the most comprehensive picture yet. Yeah. Yeah. And that's true for the origins of life too, by the way. I suspect the earliest life will be pushed back to 3.8, 3.9, maybe even 4 billion years ago. Mm -mm. It's evolving. You say that we human beings share about 90% of our genes with other mammals and you do compare brain sizes and neurons uh, between certain mammal species and we get to the point of threshold six, which is when humans enter the picture and you talk about the fact that we belong to a mammalian order, which is primates, and many would know that there are things like chimpanzees, monkeys, gorillas in that group of animals or mammals. But I was fascinated to hear about the difference between the cortex in mammal species being around 10 to 40% of brain size, whereas in primates, it then moves up to 50%. And then in humans, it makes a massive jump up by another 30% to 80%. And that there is still a substantial gap between chimpanzees and that primate level versus humans. So although we do have a great deal in common, there still is a substantial difference not only in um, the cortex but also the cortical neurons. Yeah. In in our lineage, brains evolved quite rapidly, particularly in the last million years. And this is actually a bit of a puzzle because you you could ask why didn't earlier organisms develop big brains if they if they make you so powerful? And the answer really is that brains are very costly organisms. They take up a lot of energy um, and they cause other problems. I mean, a, um, you know, a female giving birth to a, a large-brained baby, birth is much more difficult. So, so there are lots of reasons why many organisms seem to have avoided, you know, I'm talking anthropomorphically, yes, but they seem yes. to have avoided going down the track of large brains. So we're still not absolutely clear why our lineage sort of went down that track. But mm. We shouldn't underestimate chimps. I mean, chimps are very, very clever creatures. But there is some special extra thing that may be very small genetically that explains why we have an utterly different history from chimps. Writing human history is very different from writing chimp history. Isn't it? Yes. And one of the things you identify as being a significant difference is the evolution of language and communication. And that although animals can communicate, and we've seen even research recently about dolphins um, speaking to each other and using certain sounds as names for each other. Um, So there is some level of communication between very intelligent animals. Animal language. I mean, birds Mm. communicate. Um, the, The best way. I know of trying to make sense of this. And it's really a way of defining what makes us special as a species and why our evolution counts as a turning point in the history of planet Earth, which I really believe it does. Mm. It's as if we not... Our communication has improved to a point where it's crossed a threshold. 
It's got more precise. The amount we can communicate is larger. And the threshold is the point at which so much information is being shared between individuals that information begins to accumulate across generations. Now, I think we can be pretty sure that that is not true of other species because in dealing with other species, the best way of understanding their history is to talk about genes, not culture. We don't mm. see cultures that, that give them more and more powerful technologies over time. With humans, we do. So for all living organisms, information is power. How much you know about your environment gives you control over energy flows and resource flows. So now, suddenly, you have a species that's crossed this threshold that means that information begins to accumulate from generation to generation. So later generations have more information than earlier generations. That means they have more control over energy flows in the biosphere and resource flows. That means... They can support larger populations. And we see this even in the Paleolithic. This is not just to do with farming. Yes. Because in the Paleolithic, humans spread into more and more niches. And by 10,000 years ago, you can find humans in every continent on Earth. You can find mm. them in, you know, northeastern Siberia during the Ice Ages. You can find them in the deserts of Australia. You can find them in, you know, the, the, the tropical forests you can find them on islands. So this is already a staggering technological achievement in the Paleolithic. And if I, I think the best explanation is simply this capacity to share information so that information accumulates over time. Yes. Yes, exactly. The more and more that humans from other civilizations or areas on the globe uh, relate to each other and share information, the more complex Absolutely. we have become, haven't we? Absolutely. And, and what, what is striking, and this is again one of the reasons why I love the wide lens of big history, is if you study history conventionally, it's impossible to see how weird this is. But if you study the whole history of the biosphere, you can say something which I think is pretty spectacular, but very clear. We are the first species in four billion years that can accumulate information with such power that we have ended up dominating the biosphere. And on the scale of big history or the biosphere, this has happened very fast. It's like an mm. explosion. 200,000 years is tiny. And, of course, most of the changes happen very recently because this process of accumulating information is, is, is a sort of accelerating one. I mean, you just have yes. to think of the internet or printing, you know, to, to, to see that. Exactly. And as you also say... Um the, the fact of actual energy sources like coal being a major driver as well. We move to the seventh threshold, which you've mentioned, farming. Yep. When I first looked at that, I thought, oh, that's an interesting threshold <laughs> to reach <laughs> because it's not the Industrial Revolution, which often people would say would mark the Anthropocene. We're taking a step back before that to yep. agrarian societies and that creation of energy through more plant sources and more food sources then builds a population uh, that dramatically increases. And you said that by 1400 CE, human populations had grown from about 5 million at the end of the last ice age to 500 million. So that's quite a huge yep. increase. One of the interviews I had last year was with Professor Robert Jensen from the University of Texas. And he was talking about 
uh, farming as being an important point in time also, but for gender, uh, because this was a point where we saw um, that there was a need for more and more humans to create more and more energy, such as food sources. And so that's where we saw some of the beginnings of gender inequality. Women were then seen for their ability to produce children and therefore uh, resourcing on lands and farms uh, to create this kind of energy that that the population needed to progress. What is your view on that? Well, again, if I can can go back back a step, um, every time you see one of these thresholds, you can follow the energy because you need energy, dense flows of energy to, to create new things. So you can ask, what is the energy flow that creates this? Well, with Agriculture, we know what the energy flow is. It's energy that's already flowing through the biosphere. It's captured by photosynthesis by plants through photosynthesis from the sun. It's flowing through the biosphere. What agriculture does is not create new energy so much as allow one species, our own, to grab more energy, more of that energy flowing through the biosphere. And the way we do it is by um, manipulating our environments so as to increase the production of those species we can use and reduce the production of those species we can't use. We call them weeds or pests. Mm. And the end result of doing that is more of the energy flowing through the biosphere gets to us humans. So it's like an, an energy grab. But you're absolutely right that the gender consequences for this are are, are huge because in peasant societies, the fundamental rule is for a peasant family to survive, the one resource over which it has most control is children. So it's absolutely essential in a peasant family to maximise the number of children you have. That wasn't really true in foraging societies and it's no longer true today. But in peasant societies, it was. And what that did was locked women into a limited number of roles. Mm. So as these energy flows from farming increased populations and allowed more complex types of human societies to emerge with more and more roles, and some of them were power roles... Males were in a much, much better position to take up those roles because they weren't tied down to the reproductive roles. Mm. Yes, so I, 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 I agree absolutely. But, yes. but, but again, that can, make, that can be understood best if you see this in terms of energy flows mm. and a sudden bonanza of energy associated with farming. I just saw those two connections immediately when I read it and thought um, that that it all does make a lot more sense now. And also the rising inequality um, when you move into the eighth threshold, which is the Anthropocene, and um, you quote Thomas Piketty and others, uh, John Stuart Mill and Adam Smith, and those who were saying that endless growth is not really the aim or shouldn't be the aim. It may be for those that are developing, but not for rich societies. The aim should be more that things are distributed more evenly. And I was really interested in that being a key component of this era because it's so relevant still today um, and that we see not just gender inequality but economic inequality in a highly complex world. For those who are unaware of the Anthropocene, we have covered it in an interview I had with um, Clive Hamilton a year ago, but for others who this is the first time they've heard of this kind of terminology, why is the Anthropocene such a significant event and why does that count as threshold eight? By the Anthropocene, 
what I think most people who use that term mean, and so it's a very recent term. Yes. They mean the point at which our species began to control such huge flows of energy and resources that those flows began to equal the great natural cycles, the carbon cycle, the water cycle, the nitrogen cycle. And at that point, and we really crossed that point actually probably in the last 70 years since World War II, during yes. my lifetime, it's very sudden, we suddenly are controlling such fast flows of energy that we have become a planetary force. What we humans do in the next 50 years will shape the future of the biosphere and of millions of other species for thousands, perhaps millions of years. And this is very sudden that we've reached that amount of power. So what's the source of this mm. sudden increase in power? Well, I more and more think the fundamental source is fossil fuels. So if agriculture gave us access to more of the energy flowing through the biosphere, biosphere from photosynthesis, fossil fuels, which we began to be able to use only from the 18th century, because we, that's when we got the technology to do it, Fossil fuels represent an utterly new source of energy, vastly larger. If you, if you burn a piece of wood, you're tapping into energy that was captured from the sun within the last 10 or 20 years. If you burn a piece of coal, you're tapping into stores of energy that accumulated over 300 million years since the first forests on Earth. So the Anthropocene... That's the modern world, basically. The era yes. in which humans have become a planetary force is really driven by a vast new bonanza of energy, um, from, mostly from fossil fuels. So we're now so powerful that we're consuming energy and resources on a scale that's beginning to upset the kind of thermostats that manage our planet, that keep its temperatures within a range that's comfortable for mm. us and for other living organisms. Um, that's why our power, we're astonishingly powerful, is also dangerous because it's not clear that we fully understand it or that we as humans have the capacity to work together skillfully enough and in a coordinated enough way to manage these flows of energy and to make sure they do not disrupt the biosphere and degrade, and do entropy's work, basically, degrade the future of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren and millions of other species. Mm. So that's the challenge of the Anthropocene. I mean, there are also huge possibilities because these flows of energy have also allowed huge numbers of people to live much better than they ever lived before as peasants. Yes, the world is profoundly unequal today, but the, the, the positive thing is that billions of people have levels of health, of nutrition that were unthinkable before, and that again builds on these flows of energy. So mm. can we... So the challenge is really, can we preserve the best of the Anthropocene while avoiding the dangers. And, and the first, you know, to, to meet that challenge, the first thing you need is to see it clearly, which you cannot do unless you see human history as part of the larger history of the biosphere. 
Well, that brings us to the future, um, which I want to conclude on. And you say that many of the Goldilocks conditions for crossing a new threshold are already emerging. What do you think those conditions are, some of them? Because obviously we won't know until it's happened, will we? No, of course not. Um, One of the interesting things, when I first began teaching big history, and I hadn't a clue what I was doing really, um, was I think it was the second year, a very smart student came up to me and I'd just given the last lecture and we stopped today. And she said, "Uh, look, I love the course, but you can't do that. You're talking about such huge trends that in a course like this, you have to talk about the future. And I immediately agreed with what, she said, but as a historian, I feel uncomfortable talking about the future. Anyway, I began trying to do it. So what can you do about the future? You can analyse the very large trends. Those are the trends that are not going to switch in 24 hours, like population growth, like carbon emissions. And those can give you some hints about the future, about both dangers dangers and possibilities. Um, You can also analyse the challenges But the future is genuinely unpredictable. So the idea that we can predict the future is wrong for the very simple reason that it's politicians in 30, 40 years' time, people who are babies now, Mm. who will be taking those decisions. I can't tell how they'll take them. But if we see the challenges clearly now, then there's a possibility that they will make the right choices. And, of course, the right choice, I think, is by now pretty clear. It's a choice for for a more sustainable relationship with the biosphere. Because at the moment, the the energy flows, including flows, for example, of carbon dioxide, are disrupting uh, very important biospheric processes. And we know that we have to learn to stop doing that. We have to learn to live with the biosphere rather than trying to simply dominate it. And In fact, that means we probably have a lot to learn from indigenous origin stories, which really did understand much better than the modern origin story what it means to live with the planet rather Mm. than to try to dominate it. That's so true. And um, in in the modern origin story that you're looking at, I guess the only thing that we could be sure of, which we started this conversation with, is the fact of entropy and that final end point a long way into the future. But between now and then, who knows? Well, actually, the... the, the Entropy will win, but it's, mm. it's so far in the future. I mm. mean, if, if, if 13.8 billion years seems a lot, and that's how old the universe is now, multiply that by a trillion times. That's, that's when entropy will finally win. So there's a lot of... The universe has a lot of interesting history in the future before, before entropy finally wins. And entropy, yes. may, m- meanwhile, is maybe enjoying the game of creating, allowing complex things to appear, which then degrade energy and so on and so on. So eventually we know entropy will win, but that will be so far off in the future. It's not even worth thinking about. Mm. So we can't be defeatist about our challenges that we currently face and need to take full responsibility. No, actually, I mean, very often I think having having sort of taught courses on 13.8 billion years, one of the things you can learn from that is there comes a point where you have to pull back in to the personal and the familial. And for me, that point is when I look at my grandchildren and think, I do 
care. I'm a biological organism. That means I care about their fate. You know, let the universe do, do what it wants, but I actually care about what happens in the next 50 or 100 years. And I mm. think, frankly, most humans care about that. You know, so strangely, the, the, this universal perspective is really important and it gives you a sense of your place in the universe, but it can finally bring you back to the fact that we are individuals, we care, we're living organisms, we have a sense of purpose, um, and that purpose is personal and it concerns other humans. That's the perfect way to finish this story, I think, because it's uplifting and also uh, really does bring back what I think this book does, which is give one a felt need to do something about the fact that we are influencing our environment so closely, but also that our environment is so connected to us and that we are really so intertwined that we can't possibly think of ourselves as so high a status that we can just do whatever we like to where we are living today. So I really commend you, David, for writing this book. It's so fascinating to read. Thanks a lot. <laughs> and, um, and also so well researched. So yes, obviously a lot of work has gone into this book. I've been speaking with David Christian, who is the author of Origin Story, A Big History of Everything. And it's out through Alan Lane and uh, you can get it in all good bookstores. Three, triple, R. I'm very pleased to have with me in the studio Dr Anne Rees, who is the David Myers Research Fellow at La Trobe University. Hi there, Anne. Hi, Amy. It's great to have you. And... Um, really interesting to read this article which is in the conversation uh, people can look it up it's called the Australian Women Expats Who Found Liberation in the US and uh, I was very intrigued by the title because we're talking about um, a time not just uh, in when you would think feminism was really at the height of its progressive you know, nature when we'd made a huge amount of progress aka the 1970s you see the second wave really heating but also these are women who made the trip over to America earlier than that. We've seen like the, the start of the 20th century, so many amazing women, um, artists, diplomats, uh, economists, aviation, you know, like we've, it really covers the whole span of uh, professional endeavours, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does. I mean, I think when we think about Australian expats, the image that kind of automatically springs to mind is Australians in London, like Jermaine Greer and Clive James and, you know, people of that generation, the kind of baby boomer generation who went over there to have careers in the performing arts um, after World War Two. But my research traces the fact that there were actually hundreds and hundreds and really thousands of Australian women who had careers in the US from sort of the beginning of the 20th century. And most of them felt like there were more opportunities for them in the US. Mm. I really was struck. Um, there was a exhibition at, where was it? Geelong Gallery, but it was done by the National Gallery of Australia. And it showcased a huge amount of women who went across overseas to Paris, but also to America, who were pioneering in uh, modernist art, particularly the abstract types of art. There are some women in this piece who are artists. What is, what are the kind of, um, could you talk about some of those women who you know, were actually at the forefront of their fields, such as in the arts? Yeah, so one of the women I've researched in quite a bit of depth 
is um, an artist called Mary Cecil Allen. So she was um, born in Melbourne in the late in the 1890s into quite a kind of wealthy, prominent family. Her father was an academic at Melbourne University and she trained as an artist at the National Gallery of Victoria and received what was a very kind of conventional art training. And she was very successful and won prizes and in the early 1920s became a bit of a kind of Melbourne art world identity. She was producing her own art, but she was also um, giving lectures and tours of the National Gallery of Victoria. And then um, in the late 1920s, she gets this opportunity to go abroad as the tour guide for a a wealthy American heiress and they tour around the kind of art galleries of Europe. And from that, she sort of develops US connections and ends up in New York. And New York in the late 1920s just blows her mind. She's suddenly exposed, well, as in Europe, but particularly in New York, she's exposed to all this modern art that's just unlike anything she's seen in Australia and she loves it. So she ends up staying in New York and really embracing a kind of more abstracted modern style, becoming a really prominent art educator And then she's a really interesting figure because she comes back to Australia on several occasions, once in the mid-1930s, again in 1950 and again in about 1960, shortly before she dies. And on each of those occasions, she um, gives lots of public lectures and exhibitions where she's trying to say to the Melbourne public, look, there's this amazingly progressive modern art being pioneered in New York. And, you know, it's, it's something we should really engage with. And it's actually quite extraordinary, the really hostile reaction she receives in Melbourne um, from, you know, art reviewers and people writing in the press. She's treated as this um, sort of trivial, silly woman who's kind of sold out to an American degenerate art style. Um, and that her experience, the kind of Amer- anti-Americanism she experienced was really quite common. Yeah, well, that's a great point because we haven't yet at that stage reached the heights of a close relationship with America, which is only really happening in, well, World War II when we have soldiers and sailors coming to Australia, residing here um, for some period, interacting with a lot of the women here. And then we have many cultural exports following that kind of relationship because we rely upon America. Let's talk about diplomatic ties to America because it's quite relevant there um, with one of the other women that you write about. Um, Persia Campbell is fascinating. She There's a picture in this article of her um, and there are other women there, which is interesting in itself, um, but this is in 1962. Uh, Persia is appointed as a member of the Consumer Advisory Council, which is a council um that advises President John F. Kennedy, uh, and it's prim- primarily uh, full of economists, isn't it? And she was one of the um, pioneers of consumer economics. That's true. I mean, it's fa- so Persia Campbell was one of Australia's first uh, female economists, but she's very little known here. It's interesting. I found when I did research in the United States, I'd mention her name to people who had studied economics, and they recognised it. She's quite well known there but um here she's been forgotten so she um she studied economics at sydney university in the 1910s and then ended up in the u.s on a rockefeller fellowship in the late 1920s which was just meant to go for about 18 months but she fell in love 
she um, so she got married and decided to stay and took out American citizenship. But I think quite revealingly, her husband died after a few years of marriage. And, you know, she was suddenly stuck without, you know, much of an income with young children. I mean, the obvious thing to do would be to come back to Australia where her friends and family are. But instead, she is so enamoured of the US by this point that she chooses to stay in New York. Mm. And so she goes to work as an economics academic while raising two children single-handedly and just becomes a bit of a superstar. She's has this stellar economics career where she's writing pioneering textbook about um, consumer economics, which was a very new field at the time. She's becoming a consumer activist. Um, so this is in the middle, you know, the kind of wake of the Great Depression and the New Deal. And there's a lot of interest in consumer rights and reorienting the economy towards the interests of consumers as a way to kind of create greater equality and make a sort of fairer economic system. And then through this work, um, she's appointed first at the state-based level. She becomes um, a, an advisor to the governor of New York, which kind of takes her onto the national stage. And then later she becomes an advisor to JFK and also a huge figure at the UN. So when she dies in the 1970s, all these senior UN bureaucrats are saying, you know, no one can replace Persia. She was just a phenomenon. Well, how was she involved? Like, how heavily involved was she at the UN and what kind of um, activities was she engaged with at that level? She was really engaged with um, development economics, largely through lots of um, non-governmental organisations. So she was sort of, for several organisations, she was their representative um, for the UN. And that got her involved in lots of different committees and um, led her to become a really authoritative spokesperson about how the UN should sort of, um, you know, uh, take its sort of development stance to the uh, decolonising world. And she had this really interesting perspective because at that time it's sort of the heyday of growth economics. The, the prevailing wisdom is we just want to increase GDP as quickly as possible everywhere in the world. And Persia really spoke against that. She believed that just increasing GDP doesn't necessarily mean you improve people's lives. So the, the best way to actually... Um, improve economic development is to focus on the consumer. So rather than, you know, increasing production, we want to increase consumption. Mm. And I mean, it was not a mainstream idea, but she did actually have a lot of adherence at the time. And in a way, she's sort of a um, precursor to the kind of more um, human-focused approach to development economics we see coming out of the 1970s. This is um, a particularly fascinating article because uh, there's just a number of women here. Like, I mean, literally, and I'm sure there are many you couldn't even put in this article because there's a limit to what you can do in one article. Um, one of the women I was really impressed by, and I think I'd heard a little bit about, like she, there was more of a name recognition mm. when I read this, um, was Jessie Maud Miller, uh, who was the first woman to fly between England and Australia. And then she went uh, to, to America in 1928 to, as you say, capitalise on the public fascination with women pilots. What was she really known for over in America? Like how did she develop her um, popularity or 
profile over in another country? Because, I mean, I'm aware of her, but I'm not really... I don't have a strong understanding, uh, you know, from an Australian perspective about how she fits within our history. Yeah, so she was a very savvy, um, media savvy and entrepreneurial figure. She really, I think, quite consciously cultivated this sort of public persona of the kind of glamorous aviatrix. So this is sort of the heyday of people like Amelia Earhart, Um, So women in the air are seen as incredibly glamorous. They're kind of the ideal personification of the new woman. So um, what Jessie Maud Miller did is she really kind of, as I said, capitalised on that general mood. So she would – there was a real uh, circuit of – what were known as kind of air derbies and air races around the States at that time. So she would go all around the country in her plane and enter these races and very often win and win prize money and get associated media attention. So she broke the the female record for a transcontinental flight while she was over in the US, which got her a lot of national press coverage. Um, and then she also came to national attention when she her plane crashed in the Bahamas and she sort of went missing for a few days. So there was all these kind of headlines in the New York Times. And at first everyone assumed that she died. Um, But then she just kind of reappeared (laughs) suddenly, kind of high heels in tow. She always used to say in her interviews that she wore high heels in the cockpit and (laughs) she was always photographed, you know, wearing um, bright red lipstick and so on. But then um, she became even a more kind of notorious figure shortly after that when she became involved in this sort of very messy murder scandal um, and love triangle. She was um, living in Miami um, with two men. One was sort of her um, fiancé and the other was a man writing a biography of her and then the biographer was killed and then there was a suggestion that the fiancé had killed the biographer because Jesse was having an affair with the biographer and, you know, there was just a lot of um, very kind of scandalous headlines and the case got lots of attention. So she just sort of ended up leaving the country and going to England because it all became a bit too much. <laughs> so so, in, so much intrigue in that one story. I know, I know. It always feels like a sort of, you know, a novel or something yeah. that, yeah, you wouldn't expect that one woman had so much drama in a few years of her actual life. No. And what was so particularly unique about the conditions, social conditions in America that meant that these women could thrive and pursue their professional interests in a better, um, you know, way and were recognised for it over there? Um, There's a number of factors at play and I think you can sort of roughly divide them up into problems with Australia and attractions of the United States, to sort of put it crudely. So firstly, I mean... A number of feminist historians have, you know, done very comprehensive research to show that early 20th century Australia was really, you know, quite a misogynist place. I mean, there's the famous line from Miriam Dixon, the um, feminist writer in the 1970s, that Australian women were the doormats of the Western world. And I mean, that's very hyperbolic, but in Mm. some sense, I don't think it's too far from the truth. And it's quite an odd situation because, you know, on the one hand, Australia is famous for being the first country in the world to give women, white women, I should say, full um, enfranchisement. So in 1902, white women are given the right to vote and also to stand for election in federal parliament. So for this brief moment at the beginning of the 20th century, Australia is hailed as this global trailblazer in terms of women's rights. And a lot of Australian suffragists think that things are just going to get better and better and better. I'm going to have complete 
complete gender equality within a few years. Unfortunately, it doesn't turn out like that. Um, The feminist movement really stagnates and according to so many indicators, the situation for women in early 20th century Australia is really not great. I mean, even though Australia have the right to be elected to federal parliament, that doesn't happen until 1943. We have things like the marriage bar in the federal um, public service till 1966 and the basic wage is set at 50% of the male rate. So there are Uh, There is a lot of reasons to leave Australia. And there was this real exodus of Australian women going overseas, not only to the United States, but also to Britain. Australian women are the majority of Australians in Britain um, for most of this period. So there's reasons to leave Australia to kind of escape what seems like quite a hostile environment for women who wanted to work outside the home and pursue um, higher education. Then there's also reasons that the United States was a particularly good place to do this, more so than Britain in many senses. And a really, really big factor um, in this sense is the uh, great opportunities for higher education. So the United States was very early in developing um, tertiary education for women. It dates back into the early 19th century. And it also has this kind of tradition of having single-sex colleges for women, which creates this environment where women can go to university without competing with men and pursue, you know, more kind of conventionally male-dominated fields like the sciences. Significantly also those... um, you know, uh, female-only colleges have a lot of scholarships and funding opportunities because a lot of them are private and quite well endowed. So that creates opportunity for women from overseas, including Australians, to be funded to go to the States. So we know that in the 1920s, American women were six times more likely to go to university than women in Australia. So it's clearly quite a significant difference. Um... Another factor that a lot of the women um, I studied talked about is something that's a bit, maybe a bit more surprising, which is uh, labour-saving devices. The fact that things like washing machines and vacuum cleaners um, were widely available in the United States decades and decades before Australia. And I mean, labour-saving devices get a bit of a bad rap from feminist historians and there's a lot of great scholarship critiquing them and saying they don't actually save labour, they just raise standards of cleanliness and they, you know, are connected to this cult of domesticity which says women should be at the home, you know, Mm. smiling while vacuuming. But for a lot of the women I studied, they did really, um, they were really, really impressed by the way in which if you had a washing machine, you could just, um, you know, throw the clothes in, put, um, press the on button and then go about your day, which could include a career, but it also could just include pursuing interests outside the home or a kind of club life or volunteering or things like that. Mm, That's really interesting. Um, To close out this discussion and to, I guess, bring it all together, um, I wanted to talk about the fact of Australia and our current awareness of these women, because clearly in academia, there is a great awareness of these women in some pockets, not across the board. They're not taught in Australian history uh, subjects. Certainly I studied Australian history and these women did not come up. Um, But obviously people like yourself, 
are aware of them have put research into it. There are some other great um, resources like the ANU um, biography database of great women in Australia. But are we recognising them at all in our monuments or in our streets or in our um, how we name our electorates? Like, are any of these women, have they been recognised by Australia in a kind of official way? Not really. I mean, probably the only one that has um, in a really significant way is Miles Franklin, who, you know, obviously um, the the, um, Miles Franklin Literary Prize is kind of named after her. So she went to the US um, and spent several years living in Chicago early in her career, shortly after she published um, uh, My Brilliant Career, the book she's most famous for. But for most of the others, they've really, really slipped off the radar. I mean, I'm, you know, I wrote my PhD about these women and I'm turning that into a book at the moment, which will will be out in uh, the not-too-distant future. But even in academic circles, they're still very marginalised. And I think, you know, there's two reasons for that. I mean, partly, you know, in our the kind of public history narratives we tell about our past, women are pretty marginalised. You know, we tend to focus on people like Anzacs and sporting heroes and so on. But also expats in general are pretty marginalised. There's a sense often that these people had kind of betrayed Australia or they weren't, you know, real Australians because they'd spent a lot of their life overseas. So in general, we don't have a lot of memorialisation of Anzacs, I mean, sorry, expats, either Mm. men or women. Mm. I really hope that changes because um, these women are amazing. And They're doing great things. extremely impressive. Yeah. And there's many more of them. I looked at about 700 altogether. Wow. I can't wait to read your book. Um, so, And I'll, I'll let everyone know when it's out because um, I'm sure there are many other people just as fascinated. Thank you so much, Anne, for coming in and talking about these women and, um, and researching them and highlighting them. It's so important. My pleasure. That was Dr. Anne Rees and uh, they are the David Myers Research Fellow at La Trobe University and you can read the essay up on the conversation. It's called The Australian Women Expats Who Found Liberation in the US. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.